Lord, there's so much that we could pray for, for our country. Lord, as I, it's heavy on my, my heart and my mind. And Lord, I, I haven't lived a ton of years, but Lord, I, I can't think of a, a season around an election in my lifetime that's had the country so divided, so against each other. And Lord, we know that just um, shouting that we need unity really doesn't help. Jesus, there needs to be there needs to be one that can bring us together. And Lord, we recognize that you are the one who gives us unity uh, despite our backgrounds, despite our, our differences. Lord, when we come to you and confess sin and need for salvation, Jesus, that you unify us as we put our faith and our hope and our trust and we believe in you, you unify us as your body. And so, Lord, this is the longing that's inside of all of us. This thing that we struggle with as, as just human beings, Lord, to understand is we need to be cleansed of sin. Lord, we need to be restored. And Lord, that we long and desire to be unified, to be together. And so, Lord, I pray that as our eyes are set on so many things, Lord, just perusing the news and looking at, at all the information that's being thrown, out, thrown around, Lord, that we would look to you first. Jesus, we would look to you as the one who unites. You as the one who blesses and ministers and works in people. And God, I just ask that you would work in us. Lord, that you would awaken us. And that you would use us for your glory in a really difficult season. I pray for this ministry, for this church. Lord, to be sacrificial to be living sacrifices and willing to lay down our lives for others, our comfort zone for others, our abilities and our time and our resources for others. Make us sacrificial. Use us as an example in this season. Lord, prepare us to receive this word this morning. God, that puts our eyes on the kingdom that you have for us. Jesus, on your coming glory. Set our eyes on you. Give us hope and joy and encouragement this morning, we ask in your name. Amen. All right, you guys, Daniel chapter 2 is where we are, so if you want to turn your Bibles there, we're going to conclude this chapter this morning, and boy, howdy, do I need to move, because this is a large section of Scripture, and any of you that know me decently well know that I really struggle to get through those in a timely manner. Not matter, manner. That was with an N, not a T. Here we go. So if you would allow me to read verses 21 through 22 of this chapter. This really sets the tone for our text this morning. It comes from Daniel's prayer right after the Lord revealing Nebuchadnezzar's dream and the interpretation to him. Now remember, the situation is that all the wise men, the mediums, the magicians, the sorcerers, all these guys couldn't tell Nebuchadnezzar what dream he had dreamed. He's like, if you guys are legit, you're going to tell me what I dreamed and interpret it. And they're like, no man alive can do this. So Nebuchadnezzar says, all right, you're all dead. And then Arioch, the commander of the guard, comes to kill Daniel and his friends. And he says, whoa, 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 hold on. What's going on? So he gets the situation. He cries out to God. God reveals the dream and its interpretation to Daniel. And Daniel worships God. Okay, that brings you up to speed to hear. But during that time of him worshiping and praising God, he says this in chapter 2, verse 21 through 22. He, speaking of God, Daniel's declaring what God is able to do. He, speaking of God, changes the times and seasons. 
He removes kings and establishes kings. He gives wisdom to the wise and knowledge to those who have understanding. He reveals the deep and hidden things. He knows what is in the darkness and light dwells with him. I want you to notice this and I'll round these off really quickly. He, 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 him. Did you notice that in those two verses? Who's the focus of Daniel's prayer? You can say it. It's a small room. God, right? God is the focus. God is the one who's receiving praise. Now, whose power is on display in all of those statements that he makes? Is it his own? No, it's God's, right? God's power is what's on display. Now, this is the message that Daniel's going to reveal to Nebuchadnezzar. He's praying and worshiping in this way because he's seen the dream and he's seen what the interpretation is, and that's his response to it. And a lot of times I think we forget that he, when he's going to give the interpretation of this dream, that we're seeing it for the first time as we read it in the text, but Daniel has already seen it. And his response to it is, God is in charge. God is sovereign. God is powerful. God is to be praised. He sets everyone's eyes on the Lord, puts everyone's eyes on God's ability. Now, he's going to show us what this dream is in a moment, but in the midst of all the interesting things that we're going to read and ponder this morning, this is the message that we need to walk away with. This is the most important thing because so many people will get caught up in the prof, the prophetic nature of what we're going to read and what it means, and, and we're going to talk about all of that. But we can get lost in that and forget that the main point is this. The kingdoms of the world in history and currently can be powerful and even glorious. We can look at the kingdoms of this world and go, wow, now that's impressive. That includes America. That includes our little kingdom of the United States of America. But as the seventh trumpet sounds in Revelation eleven fifteen, I can't think of a better way to describe where we're going in the future. We have to remember this. The kingdom of the world has become the kingdom of our Lord and of his Christ, and he will reign forever and ever. Amen? That's what's coming. That's what waits for us. This is the future. Now, when you think about this, that's our perspective for everything that we read, that we're looking forward to a kingdom that is untouchable, to something that will never be shaken, that will always last forever and ever. We're looking for the kingdom of God to be established here. We're looking for Jesus. And so don't get caught up in all the details. Don't get caught up in, in arguments. You guys, I, you know, I, I went to Bible college for a short season. They didn't let me stay long. I caused too much trouble. But, but here's the thing. I'm kidding. But here's the thing. So many conversations we'd have late into the night were these theological discussions. And so many of these guys would run around in circles with them. Sometimes that can be profitable. But oftentimes we're so focused on figuring out eschatology and having a correct understanding of it that we forget the point. We're looking for Jesus. It can be very profitable to understand what Scripture says, but don't get lost in things that aren't the main point. The main point is Jesus is coming back, amen? And he's going to rule and reign forever. That's the kingdom we're looking for. That's what we're waiting for. And so I just, I cannot charge enough energy into this room to remind us of that. Don't forget that. This is why we get so shaken and so upset about what's going on in our world as we've taken our eyes off this eternal kingdom that's coming and we're looking around us going, this is terrible. This is hopeless. I can't stand this. I don't want this. How could the world get any worse than it already is? Well, take heart. It can. But, but inside of that, <laughs> you're like, oh, that's encouraging. You guys, we're not supposed to be looking at this kingdom. We're not supposed to be hoping in this kingdom. Our, our hope is not in America. It's not in our country. Our hope is in Jesus. He's untouchable. He's all-powerful. 
And he's coming back, and no one and no thing is going to stop him. Okay? So we could just go home now. We're good. Just kidding. Let's get into the study. We got a long way to go and a short time to get there. Here we go. (laughs) Older people in the room understand what I'm doing. Daniel chapter 2, we're going to pick up in verse 24. This is where we left off. Therefore, after Daniel's prayer and worship, Daniel went to Arioch, whom the king had assigned to destroy the wise men of Babylon. And he came and said to him, don't destroy the wise men of Babylon. Bring me before the king, and I will give him the interpretation. Then Arioch quickly brought Daniel before the king and said to him, I found a man among the Judean exiles who can let the king know the interpretation. The king said in reply to Daniel, whose name was Belshazzar, whose name was Belshazzar, are you able to tell me the dream I had and its interpretation? Daniel answered the king, no wise man, medium, magician, or diviner is able. He says to make known to the king the mysteries asked about, but there is a God in heaven who reveals mysteries. And he has let King Nebuchadnezzar know what will happen in the last days. Your dream and the visions that came into your mind as you lay in bed were these. Your majesty, while you were in your bed, thoughts came to your mind about what will happen in the future. The revealers of, real revealer of mysteries has let you know what will happen. As for me, this mystery has been revealed to me, not because I have more wisdom than anyone living, but in order that the interpretation might be made known to the king and that you may understand the thoughts of your mind. Fascinating. Quite fascinating. Now, another... As we look at verses 24 and 25, we just, we're going to take this section by section. As you're thinking about this, another view of the respect and trust that seems to be in place between Daniel and Arioch is that Arioch believed Daniel had the answer. Do you notice that? How, how well do you think it would go for Arioch if he showed up with a guy and said, this guy's got the answer, and he's like, so you dreamed about ice cream cones. And the king looks at Arioch and goes, you're dead. Right? I mean, this isn't the kind of guy you want to mess around with. Arioch believes Daniel fully, that he knows what the dream was, that he can interpret it. He believes in what he can do. And the only reason I make note of that is because it shows that you can build trust even with non-believers. Even with non-believers who don't worship the same God as you, you can build trust in between them. They can still see you as trustworthy. And it's just a very practical thing I want to encourage us with because we need to be doing this in our workplaces. We need to be doing this in the public sphere, building trust between non-believers, not because we agree with them, but because they look at us and go, I trust them. Why? Because we love God, because they know that we live to a standard that God has set, not that we set for ourselves. There should be some trustworthiness there that that we're building. And I think it's safe to assume, considering how Nebuchadnezzar um, has treated his Chaldeans, that if Arioch came to him with a guy who claimed to do something he couldn't perform, that his life was gone that he was a dead man. So there's trust between them, and I think that's noteworthy. Now, Daniel stands on no false sense of ability. He comes before the king, and he stands up, and he says it very clearly. No wise man, medium, magician, or diviner is able to make known to the king the mystery he asked about, but there is a God who reveals mysteries. Now, I want us to recognize this just together. So many of us have heard so many people um, reveal prophetic messages, whether that's right or wrong, or we've seen people, you know, do these special things on prophecy. Let me remind you something. I said that like, like Ricky from My Love Lucy. Let me remind you of something. There, there's a God. <laughs> Sometimes my English not so good. There is a God in heaven who reveals mysteries. 
It's God's and God's alone. What we are seeking to do as finite human beings is seek to better understand the infinite God, okay? That's what we're seeking to do. We want to understand him more. Don't let that set you against each other. Approaching everything in this manner, when you recognize that God is the one who reveals and that we are human beings, it does something very important. It humbles us. It removes pride from the equation. When Daniel walks in there, he doesn't walk in with any pomp or any self-acclaim that he's able to do something that no one else is able to do. He says simply, God is the one who reveals these things. He has shown me. He has shown me to do this. Doesn't make him any more special. It just means that he has heard from the Lord and he has sought God's instruction. We need to be stripped of our pride when it comes to what God is doing through us. Apply that to every facet that God has worked in your life. This is not me. This is God. This is not me that you're seeing. It's God. If we have that right understanding and we have that humility, God will continue to use us. But remember and never forget that knowledge puffs up and love edifies. That God has called us to be loving towards one another and that that humility is what carries us through and makes us usable by him. And so we need to stay in that place. And so he says, God has let King Nebuchadnezzar know what will happen in the last days. I'm sure that you've read the New Testament to some extent, but you realize that Hebrews 1.2 and 1 Peter 1.20 says that in these last days, referring to the church and gives instruction. Peter and the writer of Hebrews, whether that be Paul or anyone of note that we would like to discuss, New Testament scripture says we are living in the last days. And when the church era began, we were considered to be in those last days. And so when you see revelation to a king of old, we understand living in the last days in a whole different light. We've seen Jesus come. And so we're waiting for his kingdom to come again. We're waiting for him to return. And so he says this to him, your dream and the visions that came into your mind as you lay in your bed were these. And he says, while you were in your bed, thoughts came to your mind, verse 29, about what will happen in the future. You ever late at night and just wonder what's coming next? You know, and it kept you up more than it helped you go to sleep. Like, I wonder what's coming next. What's going to become of that child of mine that has these tendencies? You know, and you start like thinking about all these things and you start, you know, musing and wondering about the future and, you know, what's going to happen when, you know, my car doesn't run anymore. You start having these thoughts about what's going to happen in the future. Now, King Nebuchadnezzar was having big time thoughts, big time, long term future stuff. And the revealer of mysteries, Daniel says, which is God, has let you know what will happen. But he's let him see something that's on a massive scale. He sees something that's on a huge scale. And so can we just. Think about that for a second. Who did God reveal this dream to? Who did he give the dream to? Nebuchadnezzar, right? He gave the dream to Nebuchadnezzar. Was he God's man? Careful, was he God's man? Trick question. What did God say about Nebuchadnezzar and Ezekiel? He is my chosen instrument. Now you're like, Oh, but he doesn't, wait, hold on a second. He's a pagan. Oh, is this wrecking your your theology? Great. Because we'll put it back together again. Scripture does. But how often we look at God and go, he couldn't possibly. Well, he's not going to do this. Unless it's scripturally spoken, God does what he wants, meaning that he's not going to go against his word, but God will also work in ways that will baffle us sometimes. How baffling would it be for Daniel to have this dream revealed to him and say, You showed this to Nebuchadnezzar? This guy's a train wreck. He's pagan. 
He's going to slaughter all these people just mindlessly. God's like, yeah, I showed it to him. Now go tell him what it means. Be careful before you put God in a box. Remember, he's not going to contradict his word. That's why we should know it. That's why we should study the word of God because he's not going to contradict it. But be careful before you put God in a box because you can look at somebody and go, God is never going to use them. He is never going to bless them until they get their life together. Did Nebuchadnezzar have his life together? No. Did Samson have his life together? Did God use Samson? Yeah. Now, when I look at people, especially young people, do not model your life after Samson. Don't live. I mean, we have all these reasons to say, don't be like this guy. But did God still use him? Yes. Don't put God in a box. God can use us in spite of ourselves. And here's what we learn from that. We want God to use us because we are fully submitted to him. We don't want God to use us in spite of ourselves. We want God to use us and we are submitted to that. We are in loving relationship with him so that he can use us to the fullest extent. And so Nebuchadnezzar, God reveals this to. And he reveals the future sequence of Gentile kingdoms and what that's going to look like. God is going to call his shots before they happen. This is great stuff. I love it. What's interesting is as Nebuchadnezzar's wondering about the future, God's like, you want to see what the future holds? I'll show you. You know, like it's, it's awesome. He's like, check this out. And whatever he saw, which we're about to see, terrified him. Terrified. By the way, well, well, well I don't want to get ahead of myself. We'll talk about that. So God reveals this to him, but what's the purpose? Before we move past that statement, what's the purpose of him revealing it to him? So that he might understand. He reveals the dream to Nebuchadnezzar so that he might understand. If you've read the book of Daniel, you know where this is going. God in stages is going to start revealing himself to Nebuchadnezzar. He's going to start revealing his glory to Nebuchadnezzar showing himself to him, giving him opportunities to know him. And, you know, Nebuchadnezzar is going to mess it up for a little while, but in the end, he's going to get, he's going to put this together. All you veggie tailors are like, yeah, it's, it's going to, you know, I'm not going to stop until he's out of the story. I apologize, but not really. So, so here's the thing. Nebuchadnezzar's understanding of what the pagan deities look like is going to change because he's going to see the almighty God for who he is. We'll see that especially in Daniel chapter four. The goal of biblical revelation is that human beings would worship God. When you understand God, when you truly see him for who he is, the response is not to beat your chest and go, yeah, that's right. Everyone come to me. I understand God. What does it do? Your knees buckle. You go to your knees, you become humble. Because when we see God for who he truly is, it's a humbling experience to say the least to say the very least. And indeed, Nebuchadnezzar is going to get this lesson clear after much failure, um, but he'll get it straight in chapter 4. That's an exciting passage. We'll look forward to that together. Verse 31, let's continue. Daniel continues, and now he opens up what the dream is. Your majesty, as you were watching, suddenly a colossal statue appeared. That statue, tall and dazzling, was standing in front of you, and its appearance was terrifying. The head of the statue was pure gold. Its chest and arms were silver, its stomach and thighs were bronze, its legs were iron, and its feet were partly iron and partly fired clay. As you were watching, a stone broke off without a hand touching it, struck the statue on its feet of iron and fired clay, and crushed them. Then the iron, the fired clay, the bronze, the silver, and the gold were shattered and became like chaff from the summer threshing floors. 
The wind carried them away, and not a trace of them could be found. But the stone that struck the statue became a great mountain and filled the whole earth. Boy, you can just try to imagine what this would look like. And before you cue up my slide here, if you, if you search for this, <laughs> if you search for this online, like pictures of this, most of the time you're going to get explanatory um, pictures of what this looked like. Um, this one right here just provides an idea of the layout of the image. If you want to go ahead. It's okay to snicker a little bit because this is man's attempt to try and describe what God showed Nebuchadnezzar. Now, the reason I chose this one is because it said what he saw terrified him and this terrified me. Okay, that's, that terrified me. You know, eight-pack giant pointing at me, that, that worries me a little bit. But, but here's the thing. I mean, he's, he's really hit the gym. I think it's important to note um, that <laughs> according to verse 31... Nebuchadnezzar was terrified of this vision. It doesn't mean he was in awe of it. The word usage means that he was scared to death of it. It was frightening. This was a frightening thing to experience. And most of the images I found um, didn't terrify me, but this one did. Notice the detail of the text. If Nebuchadnezzar had any doubts about what Daniel knew about his dream. Were any doubts left when he was done describing it? Did you see the detail? He calls this thing out bit by bit by bit. And the stone that strikes and then grows and fills the earth, he calls this bit by bit. And notice, not only does he tell him what he saw, he tells him what he felt when he saw it. That is an interesting bit of detail that we might have missed. Not only did he tell him, this is what, you, what, what was happening and this is what it means, but he says, you were scared all the way down to your toes when you saw this image. For now, for Nebuchadnezzar, that would be like a startling thing. I what? Yeah, you were scared, bro. Right? This king who had won all these conquests and conquered the world in his region was afraid of what he was seeing in this vision that God gave him. Notice this really quickly, and then we're going to get into the explanation. The value, is this still behind me? Good. The value decreases from head to toe. Did you notice that? Gold, silver, bronze, iron, iron mixed with clay. By the way, that iron mixed with clay means that those particles would not bind properly. They would not bind properly. They'd be in a weakened state. And so as you look at this, this is descending in value as you go down. Also, please note, it would be very top heavy. How heavy is gold? Pretty heavy. Heavier than silver? Hmm? All these things would be descending in value and very, very top heavy, meaning that this isn't well constructed if it was a construction of Men. What does this represent? Does anyone know? Huh? Kingdoms of the world, right? Kingdoms of the world. How sturdy is it? Oh, we're learning things already, aren't we? Okay, let's keep going. This is fun. I'm having a good time. You guys having a good time? Great. (laughs) All right, verse 36. This was the dream. Daniel says, now we will tell the king its interpretation. This is what it meant. Your majesty, you are king of kings. The God of the heavens has given you sovereignty, power, strength, and glory. Wherever people live or wild animals or birds of the sky, he has handed them over to you and made you ruler over them all. You are the head of gold. After you, there will arise another kingdom inferior to yours. And then another, a third kingdom of bronze, which will rule the whole earth. A fourth kingdom will be as strong as iron, for iron crushes and shatters everything, and like iron that smashes, it will crush and smash all the others. 
You saw the feet and toes, partly of potter's fired clay and partly of iron. It will be a divided kingdom, though some of the strength of iron will be in it. You saw the iron mixed with clay, and that the toes of the feet are partly iron and partly fired clay. Part of the kingdom will be strong and part will be brittle. You saw the iron mixed with clay. The peoples will mix with one another, but will not hold together, just as iron does not mix with fired clay. In the days of those kings, the God of the heavens will set up a kingdom that will never be destroyed, and this kingdom will not be left to another people. It will crush all these kingdoms and bring them to an end, but will itself endure forever. You saw a stone break off from the mountain without a hand touching it, and it crushed the iron, bronze, fired clay, silver, and gold. The great God has told the king what will happen in the future. Note the final statement. The dream is certain, and its interpretation reliable. Take it to the bank. Two reminders for the king to remember as we look at verses at the top of that section, verse 36 through 38. Two things for the king to remember. Number one, God has given him sovereignty, power, strength, and glory. Everything you have, Nebuchadnezzar, has been given to you. Number two, all the people, animal, and birds have been handed to him by God. Everything that's been given to him in the physical realm has been handed to him by God. We possess nothing good that has not been graciously given. We possess nothing good that has not been graciously given to us. Church, never forget that. Anything that you have that is good has been given. Our worship of Jesus based on that statement, church, will provide joy limitless and a kingdom of God heart and mind when we remember that everything that is good has been given by God as a gift. Imagine being in the position of Nebuchadnezzar and being told this. Everything you have, you have not earned for yourself. Everything that you possess or that you rule over is not actually yours. It's been given to you. Husbands, wives, parents, young men, young women, anything that you possess that you, that you get joy from is a gift. Never lose perspective of that. We are stewards, not owners. And that's why when we die, it goes back to where it belongs. This is a stewardship we're in. Never lose perspective of that. Never lose perspective that you, even though Nebuchadnezzar was called the king of kings, has still been given everything from the true king. Amen? That's us. So our worship of the Lord flows from this understanding. Let's break these down. And I'm going to do this with some um, brevity, if you will. There's a lot of study to be done here, but I'm definitely taking more of an overview type look at it to give a better understanding and more of a, a wraparound. The head of gold is Nebuchadnezzar in the Babylonian kingdom, which lasted from 636 B.C. to 539 B.C. We see that clearly in history. It's called out that he will be in Daniel's time that he is this head of gold. And so interestingly enough, Jeremiah called Babylon a golden cup in the Lord's hand. We have all these references to Babylon through the prophets as they came and as they conquered Judah. And, and so we have a lot that's been written about Nebuchadnezzar, especially in Ezekiel. Um, but we see in, in Jeremiah 51.7 this really clear calling of Nebuchadnezzar is the gold cup in my hand, God says. Isn't it interesting that he described it like that? 
Not only does he say he's the instrument that he's going to use to bring judgment on his people, but he refers to him as this golden cup that sits in his hand. What can you do with a gold cup if it's in your hand? You can pour something into it, pour something out of it, drink out of it. You can put it away, you can stick it somewhere and not care. Who's in charge, the gold cup or the hand? Simple. Very simple. Okay, fascinating to follow this train of thought from the gold head down to the chest and arms of silver, which we can see clearly represent the Medo-Persian Empire that would follow. And the reason this is clear is because they were by far an inferior kingdom. They were not the same level of greatness as, as Nebuchadnezzar and his rule. They were this lesser metal, this silver. And what's interesting about it is a kingdom's going to come and conquer you that's inferior. They're going to conquer you. We know this, that they actually stopped up the rivers to Babylon and came underneath the walls and took the city without a fight. This inferior kingdom took them without a fight. And we will get to that later on in Daniel. That's going to be prophesied that this is going to happen. What's fascinating about this is that we get into our mindset that the bigger nation always wins. Who's going to win? Well, who has the most firepower? Who's going to win? The one who has the best economic infrastructure. Right? We look at all these things in terms of who's the biggest, the baddest, and the you know, survival of the fittest. It's bled into so many things that we look at. Have we not read the story of David and Goliath? Who should have won? Right? Have you ever read about the wars that Israel went through and when they were totally outnumbered? Read the book of Judges. You know, Gideon, you have too, too many men. He's like, they have over 30,000. We got 10. God's like, yep, too many. Takes them all the way down to 300 guys. You know, Gideon's like, God's like, if you're feeling scared, Gideon's like, duh, like, of course I'm feeling scared. We're going to get slaughtered here. God shows him. No, you're not. Takes care of him, gives him the victory. You wouldn't have put the numbers on Gideon in that situation. You would have taken the Midianites. What I'm making a point for is this. Stop thinking that America's untouchable. Stop thinking that the nation that we live in is not going to face the music for their sin and for the immorality and for all the things that are going on. We are people who belong to Jesus. We are people who are allegiant to Christ and this nation can come and go. I love living here. I love my freedoms. I love everything that I get to enjoy in this country, but I don't need it to be a servant of Christ. That is a fact. I don't need this country to be a servant to Jesus because he has a kingdom that is untouchable. He is the one who will reign forevermore. That's the kingdom I'm a part of. And we're going to read it at the end of this message when Paul says our citizenship is in heaven. Does it matter that we vote? Yes. Does it matter that we have our voice heard and that we speak out and that we seek to turn this nation towards the Lord? But I tell you this, it doesn't have to for me to be absolutely right where God has me. I belong to the kingdom of heaven. And so do you, Christian. And just because a nation is big and bad and looks tough doesn't mean that it won't fall. Don't get lulled to sleep. Be aware. Look at the signs. We are living in the last days. You're like, well, technically. Technically, it began when the church era began. We've been in the last days a while. Don't let that lull you to sleep. It's coming. It's coming. Jesus is coming. The Medo-Persians, they came. Darius the Mede will enter our studies in chapter 5, verses 30 through 31. And this, this Medo-Persian kingdom will last from 539 B.C. to 330 B.C. But it's an inferior kingdom. Superiority didn't matter. Why did superiority not matter? 
Well, if you look at verse 37, it's pretty simple, I think. It's right here in the text. Your majesty, you are the king of kings. The God of heavens has given you sovereignty, power, strength, glory. The one who gives is the one who can take away. Ask Job. The one who gives is the one who can also take it away. Don't think for a second that we're immune. Serve Jesus with the time that you have. Honor Christ with your lifestyle. The Medo-Persians wouldn't last either. The next section is the stomach and thighs of bronze. And the descriptors that's given to us there as well is fascinating because of the expanse of this kingdom. 330 B.C. to the 63 B.C., we have the Grecian kingdom that would come and take over the world. You might know somebody that kind of got that started, Alexander the Great. He's going to be shown in a very unique fashion in a further prophecy later on in the, in the book. But Alexander the Great established what was probably the largest empire in ancient times. But he died in 323. That Grecian empire continued on without him for quite a while. What's interesting about Alexander the Great is a, a, a historical side note. Did you know that he wept when he reached the end of his stretch because there was no more lands to conquer? He wept because there was no more lands to conquer. He had won every battle that he set out to win and conquered every people group that he sought out to do. And he wept because there was no more conquest to be had. People, that, that just takes us and puts us in this whole mindset change. And that the physical means that this world holds to satisfy you will it will leave you empty. You can have everything. I mean, read Ecclesiastes. You can have everything your heart desires. Solomon, pleasure, did it. Possession, had it. Power, all of it. And what does he say? Vanity. All of it is vanity. What are you grasping for? Solomon says, it's wind if it's that. In the end, in Ecclesiastes 12, he says, serve God and follow his commands. Honor the Lord. He says, that's why you're here. The man who had it all said, stop trying to get it all. Just be obedient to God. That's why you're here. That's the only thing that's going to satisfy you. Alexander the Great died tragically. And he was left empty, even though he conquered everything his eyes had laid upon. The Grecian kingdom. The stomach and thighs of bronze. The legs of iron. Anyone want to take a gander or a guess? It's probably on the screen already behind me, isn't it? Oh, Rome. Rome. You're like, really? The descriptors Rome? Oh, yeah. Oh, yeah. Here's how iron describes Rome. It crushes and shatters everything. And like iron that smashes, it will crush and smash all the others. Rome didn't come in and negotiate. Rome didn't come in and have a polite conversation. It was submit or die. And every minute that you thought that you might be winning against them, another wave of Roman soldiers would roll in. They would not stop until they crushed you. They would not stop until you were subjugated underneath them. The Roman Empire lasted from 63 BC to 475 AD. And Rome was strong in law, organization, military might. Iron's a very fitting representation for them. Now we come to the fun part. Now we come to the interesting part. And by the way, I encourage all of you to go down through these descriptors of these different nations, these different prophetic visions that, that you know, Nebuchadnezzar's having, and look at these eras and find all these amazing comparisons to the head of gold, the chest and arms of silver, the bronze you know, thighs and, and, and torso and stomach, and, and then you look at the iron and, and Rome. I encourage you to, to look into these things. It's fascinating stuff to read about these parts of history. 
We've been gifted history to study through. We need to understand it and read it. But then we come to these feet of iron mixed with clay. Now we get to this interesting part of the, the image that Nebuchadnezzar is looking at. Take a look at verses 41 through 43 with me. You saw the feet and toes, partly of a potter's fire clay and partly iron. It will be a divided kingdom, though some of the strength of iron will be in it. You saw the iron mixed with clay and that the toes of the feet were partly iron and partly fired clay. Part of the kingdom will be strong and part of it will be brittle. The strength is the iron. The brittle is that clay. You dry out clay, somewhat firm, but how easy is it to shatter? Fairly easy. You saw the iron mixed with clay. Verse 43, the peoples will mix with one another, but will not hold together. Interesting. Just as iron does not mix with fire clay. Now, much debate's been had about the time period we're talking about here, about what kingdom this is. Um, some have said that this is representation of the disintegration of the Roman Empire because it has parts of iron in it, that this is part of its disintegration towards its end. I understand that. It could be, um, but that falls under the it's possible, but I don't think it's probable. I don't think it's probable because I don't think we really see that happening um, in the final days of the Roman Empire. It doesn't seem to be a focus from the legs to the feet. They're distinguished from each other. They're distinguished from each other much as the other things are distinguished. However, the iron remains in the feet and the toes because there's going to be aspects of that iron fist that we see Rome use. There's going to be some recognition made of how this kingdom is going to work. And so it doesn't seem to be a further description of Rome, but a description of something entirely different. And that's fit. That's not even fit. Notice this. It's not even fit to be called a kingdom. Why? It's destabilized. It's crumbling. Just food for thought. And I don't want to lead you guys in any ways to think of this, but I think this is the best explanation. And this is where I don't want to get caught up in debates, but I want to give you the best explanation I can. How many toes do most people have? I got to be careful. How many toes? You're like, there was this accident when I was out with the tractor. No, I don't. I, I, don't, I understand you could have seven toes, and that's gross. But, like, but, but hold, how many toes do most people have? Ten. Daniel 7.24, which is speaking of the Antichrist. The ten horns are ten kings who will rise from this kingdom, speaking of end times. Another king different from the previous ones will rise after them and subdue three. Speaking of the Antichrist's reign and rule that we have not seen yet. Revelation 17, 12. The ten horns you saw are ten kings who have not yet received a kingdom, but they will receive authority as kings with the beast for an hour. That's a period of time. May I submit to you, one commentator observed, since the fall of the Roman Empire, there's never been a world-dominating empire equal to Rome. World-dominating, known world of their day, but world-dominating on the scene where you were answering to Rome. Never been a world-dominating empire equal. Many have tried. The Huns, Islam, so-called Holy Roman Empire, Napoleon, Hitler, Stalin. We've seen all of these rise up with aspirations to rule the known world. All have failed. Each of these had amazing power and influence, but nothing compared to that of the Roman Empire. The Roman Empire, in some form or another, will be received under the, revived under the leadership of the fallen f final dictator, the Antichrist. So says the commentator, I quote. We can have different views of eschatology. I think this one holds pretty true if you do the research. But here's the point, and this is the best part. The stone that comes flying in and crushes the feet. Now, one more observation 
uh, scripturally that I think is necessary, and then we're going to talk about the stone. Observing the support of these beliefs in scripture brings us to another consideration for context. Okay, verses 34 through 35, as you were watching, the stone broke off without a hand touching it, struck the statue on its feet of iron and fire clay and crushed them. Then the iron, the fire clay, the bronze, the silver and the gold were shattered, became like chaff from the summer threshing floors. The wind carried them away and not a trace of them could be found. But the stone that struck the statue became a great mountain and filled the whole earth. All of us that read scripture to some extent say, "Okay, something is screaming here who this is, who it is, who is it? This is Jesus. This is Jesus. The stone we know from scripture. And I'll put these passages up on the screen behind you and you can snap a picture, look them up later. I encourage you to do that. Psalm 118, 22, Isaiah 8, 14, Isaiah 28, 16, Matthew 21, 44, Acts 4, 11, 1 Corinthians 10, 4, 1 Peter 2, 4 through 8. All of these referencing the stone or the rock as Jesus himself. This is Old and New Testament theology. Jesus is the stone. Not only that, look at what the stone does. Look at the work that the stone accomplishes. Notice that it's not cut out by human hands. Notice that this is God in human flesh bringing his kingdom on earth. This is Jesus. Absolutely. He is not formed by human hands. He is the Messiah. He is the creator. And if we believe the former argument, just going backwards, if we believe the former argument about the iron mixed with clay being a disintegration of the Roman Empire, this would put the stone strike at the first coming of Christ. It makes it problematic when you look at the church and the ministry of the church. Why? Well, in one decisive impact, this stone crushed, verse 34, crushed, verse 44, crushed, verse 45. Now, when you look at all these destruction-based descriptions of the kingdom, to me, that doesn't sound like the gradual growth and salvation of lost souls by the work of the church. That doesn't sound like it to me. You can make some cases, maybe, and I'm not saying that, like, you know, I am absolutely right in this sense. I'm absolutely right that Jesus is coming again. I'm absolutely right that he is the only way to salvation. Okay? Everything else we can talk about. But he is the way, the truth, and the life, and no one's coming to the Father except through him. Amen? That's Jesus. That's what we all believe in together. There are solid things doctrinally we can hold to. But I just want to show you this because I think it's helpful. William Heslop said this, smashing is not salvation, crushing is not conversion. Destroying is not delivering, nor is pulverizing the same as purification. That's what we're seeing now. We're seeing the church do this work of the ministry now. I don't think we've seen the stone strike yet. I believe what we're observing right now is the mixing of the ingredients of the iron mixed with clay. We are seeing the destabilizing of the final kingdom that's going to come into full culmination when the Antichrist rules, and then Jesus is going to come and settle the score for good. I can't wait for that. I want that rock to grow into a mountain so that you never even remember. Don't you love the description of this, this image? As it falls, it's going to be smashed and absolutely pulverized to the point where it's like chaff. You ever seen chaff in a wind? You throw it up, gone. You'll never see it again. That's why they used to thresh wheat at the top of a hill. They would thresh their wheat there and the chaff, the sheaves on the outside would float away. You're never going to see them again. They catch the wind, they're gone. That's how much we're going to remember the kingdoms of men in comparison to the kingdom of our Lord and Savior Jesus. Ooh. If that doesn't give you chills, I don't know. I, I can't help you. How strongly does verse 43 resonate, church, with the world that we see today? You saw the iron mixed with clay. We are set for this. The peoples will mix with one another, but will not hold together. How interconnected are we right now? 
How interconnected are we as a world right now? There is a pretentious appearance of unity. How many people are like, we just need to come together? Oh, yeah, you're right, but not the way you're talking about. Not the way you're talking about. Not around being okay with sin. People are more divided than ever. On a world scale, we've never been more able to connect and communicate with each other, yet we see the human race equipped with improved means to unimproved ends. We have improved means to get things done, and what has the result been? More war. More famine, more starvation, more destruction, more division. Are we fixing any of the problems of our world right now? No, because we need the stone to strike. We need kingdom here. We need Jesus to come and rule. We need the kingdom of Jesus to come. And we can speak more easily with people on the other side of the world right now, but are we saying anything that's worth hearing? Church, we have a joyful confidence because of his kingdom. And when we are called as God's people, as the church, to live kingdom lifestyle now, that means that we don't have to wait for Jesus to come to live in a way that honors him and shows people. We are the teaser trailer to God's show. We are the trailer that people should be watching saying, oh, that's what this is going to be about? Yes. Yes, this is what it looks like. That's how the church should be living. Not looking like the world, looking like the kingdom of God with like a sneak peek, right? Here's the hope for those in Christ, regardless of your eschatology. Remember I told you we have to walk away with this. Whatever remains of the five kingdoms of men, God has shown us in his word that these kingdoms will be crushed, scattered like chaff, never to be found, and that the God of the heavens will set up a kingdom that will never be destroyed. He is our hope. He is all-powerful. He is sovereign. Amen? That's what we're to walk away with. Our proper response is to be humbled by his grace and by his power, just as Nebuchadnezzar should have been. This should have humbled him. Now you look at his response and we'll talk about this. And then we'll look at what he does in chapter three. Not this morning. Don't worry. You're like, we are? No, we're not getting in chapter three. Let's finish chapter two first. Then King Nebuchadnezzar, verse 46, fell down on his face and worshiped Daniel and gave orders to present an offering and incense to him, much like pagan leaders would do. We saw people do this with Paul. We saw people do this when they misunderstood who they were dealing with. They see the power of God at work. He presents an offering and incense to him. The king said, verse 47 to Daniel, your God is indeed God of gods, Lord of kings and a revealer of mysteries, since you were able to reveal this mystery. Then the king promoted Daniel gave him many generous gifts. He made him ruler over the entire province of Babylon and chief governor over all the wise men of Babylon. At Daniel's request, the king appointed Shadrach, Meshach, and Abednego to manage the province of Babylon, but Daniel remained at the king's court. It's a great way, and chapter two almost ends, like, remember I talked about when we finished chapter one, I was like, boy, chapter one just ends good. You know, you're like, you feel good about it, and then all this peril happens, and end of chapter two, boy, that feels good too. Don't worry, Nebuchadnezzar's not going to stay down long. He's not going to stay down long. What does he do in chapter three? What's the first thing he does? Builds an all-gold statue and sets it up and says, let's start a worship in, I'm the king of kings. You're like, oh, well, he'll figure it out after Shadrach, Meshach, and Abednego in chapter 3. No, in verse 4, he's going to say, I was at my house on, the, on the, you know, my summer palace standing up on the roof, and I looked around and said, look at this empire which I have built for myself. 
He's so stubborn when it comes to keeping the glory for himself. Resonate with you? Does it resonate with us? How quickly can we go from sitting at the feet of Jesus to telling other people that we're righteous? How often can we go from a special time of prayer and submission to the Lord and find ourselves accusing, treating people the way we shouldn't, acting ways we shouldn't? We are just like that. And the answer is humility. The answer is to be conformed into the image of Jesus and to live kingdom lifestyle like he's here right now. What Nebuchadnezzar is willing to say in chapter 2, he'll change his tone in chapter 4, but what he's willing to say here is that God is merely the best of the pantheon of gods that he already had. Did you notice that? He says it pretty clear. Your God is indeed God of gods and Lord of kings. Not he is the almighty. That'll change. The dream is certain. Its interpretation is reliable. Nebuchadnezzar really starts to believe that he's the one who's responsible for all this goodness. And in 562 B.C., his kingdom came to a close. It's pretty impressive to go from 605 to 562, but it still came to a close. These kingdoms of men are still going to be reduced to dust. Jesus Christ is going to reign forever and ever, and of his kingdom there will be no end. You can take that to the bank. His kingdom will never end. Believers, followers of Jesus, we'll be there together. We'll be there together. Take hope in that. Take heart in that. Remember that when things get tough. That's not a fantasy. That's reality. We will be there in that kingdom with him together. No more pain, no more sin, no more sorrow. Just Jesus. Glory. Forever. And so now, as Paul says in Philippians 3, verses 20 through 21, let us remember this. Our citizenship is in heaven, and we eagerly wait for a Savior from there, the Lord Jesus Christ. He will transform the body of our humble condition into the likeness of his glorious body by the power that enables him to subject everything to himself. Put that on your mirror this week. Write it out on a little index card. Put it on your mirror. That's what's coming. I hope you guys are encouraged. Let's pray and then we'll worship. Father, thank you for this church, this fellowship. Lord, there's so many things we can set our eyes upon. And I thank you for a reminder in your word that just says, hold on a second. <laughs> we, we're waiting a kingdom that's not of this earth. We are part of a kingdom that's not of this earth. I thank you for these brothers and sisters. Lord, as we worship, I ask that you would set our eyes in the place where it should be looking to you, Jesus. You're the author. You're the finisher. And you are the one who has said that these things will be so. I thank you, Lord, that our desire inside of our hearts for something so much better than what we see comes from you. Lord, that 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 longing that we have inside of us, Lord, you put it there. And Jesus, we just thank you for your grace. Encourage us further this morning as we worship. and We thank you for your word.